Ever wonder how to affect real, meaningful change? Whether it be a social movement or a corporate movement, what does it take to influence positive, important change at scale? Well, you need to create a movement. In this episode, I speak to international keynote speaker and author Greg Sattel on the importance of good information, clear purpose, and shared values when creating a successful movement. So if you're going to bring people in, you need to shift to shared values, things like high quality projects that are done on time and on budget. And I think that is going to be the real challenge moving forward after coronavirus, because the political environment is so absolutely divided. What shared values remain? And I think that's really the big question moving forward. So, ready to learn more about how to use your own personal agency to affect real, meaningful change in the world? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Greg Sattel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. So why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background about you? Well, I am the author of two books, Mapping Innovation and Cascades. Fun fact about me is I spent uh, 15 years running media companies in Eastern Europe. Wow. So in places like Poland and Ukraine and Russia, a little bit in Turkey as well. So that was a lot of excitement. So I'm happy to be home now back in the U.S. and living a much more boring existence, <laughs> which I like. <laughs> Politically speaking, much more boring here than where you were working for all those years. That is true. <laughs> but it's livened up nicely lately. <laughs> yeah, it sure has. And that is interesting because that's not just a U.S. problem. That is a global issue, which is an interesting thing to think about all of us across the world being in a very similar circumstance right now. Yeah, it really is amazing. And one of the interesting things is that the countries that have done best are the ones that got hit the worst by the first SARS epidemic in 2003. So they were able to learn something from that much more quickly while we in the United States and in Europe, the so-called Western developed world, didn't act as quickly or as wisely. So that's something hopefully we can learn from in the future. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I've talked to a lot of folks about is that topic. What do we learn from this experience and how do we carry it forward in the future? But I would love to know your thoughts around that. So as we're learning through this new journey we're all on, which is relatively new to all of us, we have never experienced a global pandemic. Of course, a lot of pandemics have happened in the past before many of us were around. But now we're kind of venturing into new territory, needing to learn something from our current experience and carry that into the future and whatever the future might look like, whether that be falling into our old patterns or creating a new normal. What are your thoughts around what things might look like after we emerge from this current place of isolation we're all in? Well, a couple of things. I think, first of all, we should feel somewhat lucky that this is happening now versus 10 or 20 years ago. Right. When we didn't have the technology, video conferencing or other types of digital technology to collaborate remotely. Uh, and we also didn't have the biological technology, things like CRISPR and other gene editing technologies. You can go on the Milcom Institute website and track all of the therapies that, that are going into testing. But I think on there, there's something like 50 vaccines are going into testing. And many of these vaccines, they're developing by creating new viruses that only code for one or two proteins that will then infect us and hopefully give us some immunity. We couldn't do that 10 years ago, or we certainly couldn't do it nearly as fast and at scale. That's not just one effort in one lab. You're talking about dozens of efforts and dozens of labs doing that type of work. That's, that's amazing. We couldn't have done that just a short time ago. So that's the first thing, you know, to sort of get some perspective. The second thing I think is that we'll definitely see, if any past pandemic is any indication, we'll definitely, or any past crisis, we'll definitely see an acceleration 
of existent nascent trends. And I think that's, you know, we can see that with Zoom. You know, a month ago, if I would mention a Zoom call to most people I knew, you know, my mother or her friends or my wife, or they didn't really know what it is. And now my 10-year-old daughter has her own Zoom account. And I think we'll see a lot of things like that. And the third is, I think, up for grabs. I was on an open forum recently with a collection of thought leaders, and somebody said, and I thought it was quite apt, they said that, you know, we're going to have another Occupy after all this is over, just like we did after the financial crisis. And I thought that was very interesting and apt observation. But we should also remember that Occupy was a massive, massive failure. You know, you're talking about millions of man hours, probably billions or possibly even trillions of dollars in value, even if you're counting it as minimum wage. How many thousands of people spent how many thousands of weeks and devoted it to the Occupy movement around the globe and accomplished basically nothing? And you can imagine if we could harness that energy to accomplish something worthwhile and worthwhile change. That could be an extremely powerful force. Or, you know, we can just sort of forget about it as there's been a lot of effort to rescind some of the safeguards that we put in place after the financial crisis. In less than 10 years, we seem to have forgotten the danger or the value in investing in resilience. So I would hope that that would be the lasting legacy, that we learn to invest in resilience, even against abstract threats. Because let's face it, if coronavirus was a terrorist, we would have killed it months ago. But because it's not something that captures the imagination like a terrorist with a different religion, we failed to act. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. Thinking about what we hope to learn from this is not just about what we carry forward, but also some level of fear that people don't learn from this experience or don't carry forward those learnings in a way that help us evolve. Yeah, I think we all need to hold ourselves more accountable. And I think you have to go back to Occupy and we need to look and say what went wrong. I write a a lot about this in my book because I, I think Occupy is such a fantastic example. It's no accident that Occupy failed. You know, they didn't prepare. They they didn't work effectively. They shunned institutions instead of partnered with institutions. They didn't have a real vision for the future. It was a bunch of things that activists didn't like, like greedy bankers and student loans mm. and all sorts of grievances, but no clear vision of what change is supposed to look like. And they were undisciplined. Taking over a park is not an effective tactic. My friend Serja, who was involved in the overthrow of Milosevic and since then sort of overthrows countries for a living from his position at, at the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, he went and to train the activists in Occupy. And he told them, what are you sleeping in a park for? Don't you know bankers, they have air conditioning? They don't care where you sleep. And they're just going to wait you out because it takes a lot of commitment to live in a park right? I mean, that means you can't go to work. You can't take care of your family. You can't have friends. You can't go to school. You can't do anything, really, if you're committed to sitting in a park. Sir Jaws kind of a genius this way. He said, look, if you want to hurt the banks, send them a brick. You know, it costs them $15 to process a brick by business reply mail. You know, so when they send out those little business reply cards, you know, to sign you up for a credit card, you know, tape it to a brick and put it in a mailbox. He said, send them 10,000 bricks. That'll get their attention. And I actually recently checked that out with somebody who used to be a senior executive at American Express. And she said that they were terrified of somebody figuring that out. Of course, it wouldn't be as effective today where they spam your email instead of your mailbox. But you know, even today, when you talk to people who were Occupy activists, they still don't get the message that they failed because they didn't hold themselves accountable. You know, it's not enough just to make a point. You have to really think about how you're going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I pulled a couple quotes out of your book, and one of them was around why movements fail. And that's when they rally the faithful and demonize those that don't share their values or commitments. Is that the thing that takes our eye off the ball? What would actually be effective to move a movement forward 
to really stay true to the values and the outcome that you're looking for versus trying to make a point in a way that may not be effective. Yeah, I think the Autpour movement that overthrew Milosevic is a great example because those activists had failed twice before. They failed in 1992 and they failed in 96. And anybody who looked at Serbia, let's say in 1999, they would have said, you know, Milosevic, he's going to rule for the rest of his life because he rules the country with like an iron hand. There's no visible political opposition. And as late as 1999, nobody would have thought that there was anything really amiss. And a year later, he was voted out of power, and then he tried to steal the election. There was this massive movement against him. A couple of years you know, soon after that, he was on trial at The Hague, and a couple of years after that, he died in his prison cell. So things can change, but you have to be serious about it, and you have to look at how movements throughout history have been successful. One of the things, interesting things I found in my research is that all the social movements and political revolutions and even organizational transformations, they all started off very different, but the ones that succeeded all ended up looking very, very similar to each other. So one of the things is, as you alluded to, you can't just talk about what you're against. You need to come up with a clear vision for change, a vision of tomorrow. If you could change anything, how would you like that change to be different? From there, you need to come up with an initial change that I call in the book a keystone change. But it all has to be focused on shared values. And that's a a really, really crucial point. And it's really interesting to see this in our workshops where we're talking about organizational transformations or, you know, something like agile development is a great example. It's amazing how many organizations are still trying to get adoption of agile development, which has been around for quite some time. And when we talk to people who are trying to scale something like agile development, We talk to them about the difference between differentiating values and shared values. And differentiating values, that's what people, that's what makes people excited about an idea. So for instance, with Agile, Agile's got an Agile manifesto, which talks about things like doing away with technical requirements and shifting to user stories and a proponent of Agile project management talking about it. And you'll see how excited they get about it. But that doesn't mean anything to somebody who's never experienced agile development. So if you're going to bring people in, you need to shift to shared values, things like high quality projects that are done on time and on budget. And I think that is going to be the real challenge moving forward after coronavirus, because the political environment is so absolutely divided. What shared values remain? And I think that's really the big question moving forward, certainly within the United States, but I think throughout the world, what values do we all share that we can use as a foundation for change moving forward? Yeah, I do think that the current situation we're all in, this kind of goes into one of the things you mentioned in your book too, around shared human experience and the importance of shared human experience and movements. But I think there's also an interesting thing to think about the fact that our shared experience may actually be starting to uncover some of our shared values, not even just here in the United States, but potentially globally. Absolutely. And I think in the United States, it's really, really difficult to understand that different people around the world think much, much differently than Typically, Americans think that everybody around the world is kind of just like us, when obviously that's not true at all. And I can tell you from living overseas for 15 years, it is clearly not true. So I think it's really important to be better listeners. I mean, you can be clear about where you stand and still be a good listener. And I think the United States is a great example where You know, you have a large population of white working class. It's the only significant cohort in the developed world that has a declining life expectancy. And and the three top reasons for that are drug overdose, uh, liver disease from alcoholism, and suicide. So you're talking about a group of people that's really, really hurting. And they're really, really angry. So I think that, 
you know, we need to get better at saying, I really don't agree with these people politically or with some of their opinions, but I can still empathize with their situation and I can still advocate for their well-being, even if I disagree on a very visceral level. I think that's sort of the first step in making change happen. Not that you have to agree with those people, but at least understand their situation. And that's where you can start building a foundation of shared values moving forward. And another thing I talk about, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but because the way I prefer to write books as narratives, I wasn't able to emphasize it nearly as well as we do in the workshops. But when you think about actions, when you think about tactics, and in our workshops, we spend a lot of time on this, on specific actions and specific tactics, you always want to be mobilizing somebody to influence something. Those are the two questions you have to ask about every action you take. And this, again, is whether it's a political revolution, a social movement, or an organizational transformation. Who are we mobilizing and to influence what? And you can see this might have been Occupy's biggest shortcoming and their biggest mistake is that they didn't realize this. In fact, they eschewed institutions. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. Even when somebody like John Lewis, the great civil rights activist, came to an Occupy rally in Atlanta and asked to speak, and he was told he couldn't speak. I mean, how could you turn somebody away like that? And there was various reasons given. Some people said it was racist. Others say, well, that was just the rules. And others said that they didn't want to be part of the two-party system. Anyway, you slice it. That was a serious missed opportunity. And if you're not willing to work through institutions, there's no way you're going to make change happen. You can't create change in the financial system without financial institutions. And not even just that. I mean, you need a wide variety of institutions. You need legislators. You need courts. You need look back to the civil rights movement where Martin Luther King, he didn't write a single piece of legislation and he didn't argue a single court case. And he certainly didn't decide any court cases. But by influencing institutions that could and did, he was able to drive an enormous amount of change. So that's something you always want to keep in mind. You always want to be mobilizing somebody to influence something. And that's how you actually make change happen. I think there's definitely an interesting parallel to think about people who create effective movements. So you talk about Martin Luther King Jr. Really compelled people to follow him because of shared purpose, shared values. But he motivated people to make a bigger difference in the world. And there's an interesting parallel to effective leadership in relation to how you motivate people to get involved with a movement, put their energy towards that movement, and help to make a change in the world. And I'm wondering if there's opportunities that will start to arise, given our current circumstances, given all of the people talking about the need for change, or potentially the need from learning from our current experience and, and moving forward, to create new movements is this going to generate a different type of leadership coming out of our current circumstance and kind of moving into the future? Or will this be more reminiscent of a leader like Martin Luther King Jr., who really compelled people to join a movement to affect change? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we want to unpack. I mean, first of all, Martin Luther King wasn't the sole leader of the civil rights movement. He was part of the big six, they were called at the time including things like Congress of Racial Equality, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Co Committee that John Lewis ran, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the NAACP. And Martin Luther King actively collaborated with all of those groups. And they all had slightly different values. They focused on slightly different constituencies. Martin Luther King's movement was very much a middle-class movement where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was obviously much, much younger and a bit more radical. The NAACP, of course, focused on very different institutions, very focused on the legal and legislative uh, pillars of institutions. So I would say that's the first thing. You know, I think there's this myth that 
if Occupy had a leader like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Mandela, they would have somehow been able to succeed. But I think clearly that's untrue. I think when you look at all of those leaders, they changed themselves and it was their ability to collaborate with others that made them effective. Where Occupy, it was their inability to work with anybody who wasn't the purest of their ideology was a big part of their downfall. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is when you look at how movements start, they never start with trying to go and convince people who disagree with you. Eventually you get there, but you know, you always start off with people who are already enthusiastic about the idea. And you work with them to create an initial change. In the book, I call it a keystone change, which is not always obvious, right? For instance, the women's movement in America in the 19th century, it wasn't at all obvious that voting rights would be their first you know, initial change. But that's what led the road to equality for women. Of course, that's something we still haven't achieved. But we've come a long way from the 19th century when women were considered basically property and could be abused by their husbands or even killed by their husbands with no legal recourse. So it's finding that initial change, that initial keystone change. We saw it very recently with the LGBT movement and same-sex marriage, which was controversial for a long, long time within the LGBT community. But boy, when they finally committed themselves to it, things changed very quickly because they were able to express it in terms of common values. You know, things like the right to live in a committed relationship and to raise healthy and happy families. And that, along with a commitment to legal institutions, is what helped change the tide. So I think after the coronavirus, you know, after the dust settles, I think we're going to have to think seriously about what we want our societies to look like. And we're going to have to build that on a foundation of shared values. Right. How, how do we not fall back into our old patterns of behavior? I feel like there are a lot of people that see something new happening in our future once we kind of get out of the coronavirus circumstance. People return to workplaces. People return to their places of worship. People return to societal norms or cultural aspects of our society that have halted like sports and other in concerts and so forth. How do we not fall into that trap of falling back into our old normal? Well, look, I think there's still a lot of old things going on. I mean, you look at Jerry Falwell Jr. and Liberty University calling the students back. Mm -hmm. And you have thousands of parents and students who are going along with that. You have many religious communities that are still holding services. So that's a real problem. But I think it can't blind us to the idea that we need to focus on what's the difference that we can make. I mean, the first step is what do we want that end state to look like? And I don't think we have any clear consensus on that right now. I don't even think that we have a clear consensus on the need to invest in resiliency. I don't think that there's a real large consciousness of the need for us to be more conscious of risks that we face and work to mitigate those risks ahead of time so that we don't have this absolute meltdown. Right. For some reason, I keep thinking about the topic of innovation. And I've had a little bit of a beef personally with some of the definitions we put around what innovation is. And I'm wondering if now, when we think about innovation moving forward, if there's some level of change in how we perceive innovation and the difference that we could make through innovative solutions to problems, given our current circumstance. My definition of innovation has always been that it's a novel solution to an important problem. But I do think that, again, we need to be more accountable and be more responsive to our own failures. I mean, I'm Generation X. We were the ones, you know, we were the digital generation. Um, we were the globalized generation. And I think clearly technology and globalization have failed us. 
you know, I think we put far too much faith in technology and in markets for that matter. And after the dust is settled from coronavirus, technology will not save us. Markets will not save us. You know, we're going to have to make better choices. That's all there is to it. There's a number of risks that are just as serious as pandemics. When you look at artificial intelligence, people like to talk about things like this Terminator scenario where, you know, all our machines go berserk and try and kill us, which is, I suppose it's a possible but not very likely outcome. But then you look at things like data bias and algorithmic bias, and it's a huge problem. And it's affecting us now where we've outsourced so many decisions to machines, usually ones that affect lower income and lower educated people. And they're making decisions about what schools we go to, whether we get a loan for a car or, or a home, whether we get a job, whether we go to jail, whether we get paroled. And these are, first of all, they're not regulated any, in any way. Second of all, they're usually not transparent. And it's, it's very, very difficult stuff. Just in the last year, we've seen companies like Apple and Google and Amazon have some problems with biased algorithms. And if they're having trouble with it, think about all the other companies that are helping us to automate our decisions and you know what kind of care they're putting into those decisions. It used to be that, well, it still is to, to a large extent, that when you needed a bit of code, you would just go online and grab it. But we can't do that anymore because unless your algorithm is something that you can explain and is audible and explainable and transparent, we're really running into problems and those problems are going to get even larger. You can see that trouble coming because we're already having it. What's being done about it? You know, and then similar things with pandemics, with our debt, with other technologies. And we just have to, A, educate ourselves, but B, we need to make better choices. So what are some of those better choices that we can make, especially in relation to artificial intelligence? You know, as you mentioned, it's making more and more decisions on our behalf. As we look into the future, I think there is a tendency for, for some organizations, technical organizations in particular, to think about new and novel problems they can solve through artificial intelligence. However, is there a point at which we're trying to over-solution for problems that are not as impactful as some of the big problems that we face as a society? I think we need to look at the past. These are not new issues. We had issues surrounding nuclear energy, and we were able to deal with it in a responsible, productive way. And we had similar issues with gene editing back in the 1960s, I think it was. And they came up with this conference at Asilomar. And in both of those issues, you can see some common features. So it, it wasn't just scientists when it wasn't just regulators. It was a broad-based collaboration between scientists and lawyers and politicians and ethicists and people in the media working together to come up with some reasonable solutions. And we were able to do that with nuclear energy. We were able to do that with gene editing. When you look at artificial intelligence, I mean, first of all, nobody really understood these issues till I think it was maybe three or four years ago. I remember being at a cognitive colloquium at IBM Research when it seemed like the whole community just woke up and said, hey, these are really, really big problems we haven't really thought about. And the big tech companies started something called the Partnership on AI with organizations like the ACLU. And I think that's really the approach that we have to take, where we're getting both the principles, such as tech companies like Amazon and Google and on and on and on, but also people like the ACLU, legislators, ethicists, attorneys, and trying to figure out what are some reasonable solutions. And then I think we as, you know, as citizens, we need to push our leaders to invest in resilience, you know, to come up with some reasonable legislation about things like AI and cybersecurity. And that's another example. The U.S. government just recently 
created a new manufacturing institute focused on cybersecurity. So we can come up with answers for these things. It's not impossible. We have models in place that have been there for decades. But again, we need to make better choices. We need to recognize these things are real problems, and we need to actually invest in solutions. Right. I saw one of the posts that you did out on your Digital Tonto blog, I think around thinking about the expertise that people have in relation to some of the issues. And I think that particular post was really talking about, you know, coronavirus pandemic, but really kind of explored how we listen to people who have different levels of expertise. But beyond that, also how we think about the perspectives of other people outside of those arenas of expertise and how things can kind of come together. Yeah, I don't think people really understand what the function of an expert is. You know, we're not supposed to outsource our decision-making to experts, right? I mean, experts are people with specialized knowledge in a recognized field, right? So just because somebody might be a fantastic geneticist doesn't mean that they should get to decide what genes get edited and don't. But if we are going to really understand the contours of the debate, we need those experts to inform us so that when we're making judgments, those judgments are informed by the facts. And I think that's what we've really gotten away from, the idea that any fact is as good as any other fact, right? One of the amazing things I've seen on social media over the past month is you know how people seem to have earned medical degrees overnight and feel fully empowered to give medical advice on Facebook. And you see these posts that are supposedly by some doctor at, at Johns Hopkins, you know, explaining how DNA is a protein. Well, DNA is not a protein. DNA is a sugar. <laughs> and that's the type of thing that, you know, would be on a freshman biology test in high school. So I don't think a doctor from Johns Hopkins University would make that type of mistake. So we are sort of inundated by this not very good information. And meanwhile, the experts we do have, like Tony Fauci, who literally is probably the greatest expert in the world on epidemics and what population health in general. I mean, he's been dealing with this stuff since the Reagan administration. You know, he's getting death threats. <laughs> you know, the guy that we should be listening wholeheartedly to, that's a real problem. You know, again, I don't think we should all bow down at the altar of Tony Fauci. But, you know, Tony Fauci shouldn't be deciding what we do with our economy or, you know, even on social distancing. That's not his decision to make. He is not an elected official. But if we're going to make those judgments, we better be listening to people like Tony Fauci, because those are the people with the specialized knowledge to inform our judgments and decisions. Absolutely. Well, good news for Tony Fauci. He now has a bobblehead I saw earlier today. Oh, does he? Well, good he for does. <laughs> but I mean, I think that really, really speaks to the fact that people see him a lot on television now. Uh, I think some people are listening, but you're right. There's so much misinformation on social media about our current circumstance. Some of it was because when this first started, a lot of people were highly skeptical or people made false assumptions or false claims that this was a political stunt or that this wasn't going to be real. But here we are. Or that people are overreacting. Right. And it happens on both sides. I just saw on Facebook, on our local community group, this woman who was really going off on people for going outside and taking walks without their masks. And somebody said, well, how do you know we're not supposed to do that? She said she watches the news. And then, of course, a, a bunch of people pointed out that that is not the CDC guidelines. So we need to be more skeptical of all the information we receive and go to things that are primary sources, like the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, or the NIH, or, or others. You know, if somebody is alluding to expertise, this comes from a Johns Hopkins professor or doctor or whatever it says. That means nothing. Just because somebody says it, they're alluding to some authority. But unless you're actually hearing it from the authority itself, there's a non-trivial chance that you're getting bad information especially when people aren't 
citing properly. If something is from a Johns Hopkins University or the CDC or something like that, and it's on social media, they can clearly include a link to that source. If they're just including a link to a website that you may have never heard of or a journalistic source, you know, a so-called news source that, again, isn't properly referenced and isn't linking to, and it's important to follow those links. When they say somebody said something and they're providing a link, you need to be responsible and you need to be accountable and you need to click on that link and see if it takes you to a recognized source and not just another article from that very same news source. I think we all need to be more disciplined about that, especially when somebody is expressing an opinion we agree with. That's when we need to be really hypervigilant that we're getting the right facts. Absolutely. I think that's one of those pitfalls of human nature, confirmation bias. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember I included a couple of links in that article, you know, for instance, that in a 2015 poll, 30% of Republicans and I think 17% of Democrats were in favor of bombing Agraba, the country of Agraba, which of course is not a real country, but the homeland of the fictional Disney character, Aladdin. You know, is that something where an expert can really inform the debate? Another interesting poll showed that back during the Ukrainian crisis, they asked people two questions. They asked where Ukraine was on the map and whether we should intervene militarily. And the people who were the furthest off, you know, the people who thought Ukraine was located somewhere in Asia Pacific or something, those were the ones who were most in favor of intervening militarily. So the people who knew the least about the situation had the, the strongest opinions about it. Um, and also there was a third study that showed that, you know, when they showed political partisans expert documentation that conflicted with their beliefs, instead of taking it at face value, they would argue about the objectivity of, of the science itself. So those are really, really troubling data points. And, and I think we all need to be more careful about how skeptical we are about information and being more rigorous about forming our opinions. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting when you kind of tie it back to the science behind movements, going back to cascades and thinking about the importance of disseminating accurate information. And also ensuring that the movements you decide to follow actually align to your values or are actually based on fact. Well, also, and again, going back to Altpur movement, but all the successful movements, they anticipated bad information, which is why in the case of the Serbian movement and many others as well, when they eventually had large demonstrations, which they always put off doing until the very, very final stage, they had lots of procedures in place to protect the police because they understood how easy it would be for the regime to send in a couple of troublemakers to do some rock throwing or something and delegitimize the entire movement. We ask people a similar thing in our workshops when we talk about surviving victory. We ask them, how would an evil person undermine the change you seek, right? How would, how would an evil person do that in a completely unfair way? And it's amazing when you see people start thinking that through and realizing that these things probably will happen and that you need to be responsible and accountable ahead of time and think about how you can mitigate those risks and how you can mitigate those attacks before they happen instead of just saying, oh, well, we had all these great intentions, but then, you know, some people did something that was completely unfair. So I guess we just close up shop and forget about change. Right. And I guess it's harder to do that, though, when you kind of go back to that point of making sure you have a purpose. And once you have that shared purpose and build momentum around that, it's very difficult to walk away from that outcome you're trying to achieve. Yeah, which is amazing how easily people sometimes walk away from it. But I mean, look, there's going to be a certain segment of people, whether it's 10% or 20%, whatever that percentage is. And those people will never 
agree with you, right? They're always going to be there. In America, we still have people who want to fight the Civil War. You know, you'd think 150 years would be enough to get over it, right? They're 160 years now. But some people, for whatever reason, will never go along with the change and will constantly be working to undermine your efforts. So instead of complaining about that, you know, you just need to treat that as a reality. We were working with one education nonprofit, and they were talking about Common Core and how they'd gone through all this stakeholder mapping, and they got everybody on board in terms of teachers' unions and legislators and school boards and stuff like that. And then at the very last minute, you'd see, you know, thousands of people showing up at school board meetings because political organizations had basically rallied them to derail Common Core. And we talked about that with them. We said, so that's foreseeable now. You know that's going to happen. You can't say you don't see that happening again. You know it's going to happen again. So how are you going to mitigate those risks? And then we had a, a much more specific discussion around media training so that, you know, the next big education initiative, instead of just waiting around to have it upended, actually have media training and be ready to combat those false narratives that are trying to derail your efforts. So you can be proactive in preparing and thinking about, you know, where these bullets are going to come from. And even more than that, that it's your responsibility to do it because good intentions aren't enough. You have to be smart about how you do things. And I'll just give one, one of my favorite examples about that, again, from Serbia, where they had uh, failed in 1992 with the anti-war protest. They had failed in 1996. And then some youth activists, they came together in 1998 and they sat there at a coffee shop and they said, we need to make this change work. We need to get rid of this dictator we have named Milosevic. And they said, we know from experience that if we can mobilize people and get them to the polls, that we can win the election. And we know from experience that if we win the election, Milosevic will try and steal it. And that will be our chance. So they had learned from their earlier failures, not that they can win an election, but that when they do, he's going to try and steal it. And instead of complaining about it or making that feel helpless, they saw that as an opportunity because that would be their chance to really mobilize everybody, both in Serbia, but also throughout the world. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. And they won. And that's a pretty powerful example of how to create a movement. And since then, they've been doing it all around the world in something like 50 countries, you know, places like Egypt and Zimbabwe and Burma and on and on and on. So there is a repeatable model for making change happen. We just need to follow the model. Right. Doesn't mean it's easy, but there are proven formulas for, for making this happen. And not to trivialize it, but one of the reasons why I wrote Cascades is, sure, social change and political change are important, but just as important is pushing for change in our organizations and knowing that we have the power to make it happen. One of my more recent examples I uncovered was a couple of guys at Procter & Gamble who thought that Procter & Gamble could be using digital technology much more intelligently with respect to internal processes. So they didn't go and ask for a big budget, and they didn't complain, and they didn't say nobody's listening to us. Instead, they looked at their own department, and they went and they said, let's just try and improve, see if we can improve this one process. And it took them six months or so. It wasn't easy. But they were able to bring down the time for this process from several weeks to a few hours. And they created that change themselves. This, this was 100% in their power to change. And who would object to somebody going out, identifying a problem, and then working to find a solution? You know, they didn't ask for a budget. They just got to work and fixed a problem. And from that one project, they created a movement within Procter & Gamble that now encompasses thousands of people 
implementing digital transformation. So that's an amazing thing. These weren't senior guys. They were middle manager types, but they created an enormous amount of change in a big institution like Procter & Gamble. So it really is possible. Yeah. And I think that's almost the most compelling of all. The fact that anyone has an opportunity to make a difference, anyone has an opportunity to create a movement and affect change. And every once in a while, people might need the window to be open, the door to be open just to crack for them to be able to see that possibility. But for everyone to understand the importance of their own agency and moving forward and affecting the change that they want to see, that's powerful. Yeah, I love that phrase, the importance of their own agency, you know, that we are not helpless. We can make choices. We can make a positive impact on the world. But just wishing it won't make it so. You have to go about things intelligently and learn the basic principles of how a social movement works. And that is why I was so passionate about writing Cascades, that I wanted to empower people in that way. Well, I'm positive you have. Well, let me ask you another question. What makes you optimistic about the future? Oh, don't ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think, I mean, you do see these nation efforts. It is frustrating that there are people so resistant to change. But when you look at things like the business roundtable coming out against shareholder value as as a way to, to run a business, and there's lots of questions about how sincere they are or aren't or whatever. But I think that the fact that they felt the need to actually come out and say that after 30 years is a really big deal. And I think that we are beginning to come to a consensus that capitalism needs to be about more than financial capital. You know, we can't just optimize for one variable, whether that's GDP or net income or whatever it is, and that we need to take into account other types of capital, which are just as important. You know, things like social capital and human capital and natural capital. I do think that we've gone through such a huge shift over the past 30 or 40 years. I read something uh, recently that, you know, 40 years ago, about 80 to 85% of corporations' assets would typically be tangible assets. So things like factories or money in bank accounts or other tangible assets, where today 80 to 85% of a corporation's capital tends to be intangible capital. You know, things like intellectual property, like Google's uh, algorithm or our brand or um, trust or whatever it is, or certainly our human capital. I mean, you look at, you know, something like Zoom, right? An engineer who was working at Cisco was, uh, I think, lead engineer on WebEx, said, I can go do this myself. And obviously that human capital is quite valuable because that he went and started a company that I think is worth 30 or 40 billion at the moment. So I think there is that realization that we need to be looking at capitalism as encompassing more levels of capital, more types of capital than simply financial capital. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, and I'm sure that the next question will take you multiple directions, potentially. So you can limit it to your number one, top of the list. What concerns you about the future? Time's running out. I mean, quite clearly, I mean, time is running out on a number of different things. I mentioned artificial intelligence. Our debt levels are, our financial debt levels are obviously unsustainable. We haven't issues surrounding new technologies, whether it be uh, CRISPR gene editing or quantum computing. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. And we are entering, as our technology becomes almost infinitely power, we're entering a new moral universe. And we need to take that seriously. And there's no better time for people to take their personal agency to start a movement to address those issues. So. I personally compel listeners, if they feel passionate enough about those types of concerns, which are really important, 
when we think about the future of humanity beyond technology, beyond, you know, corporate success and capitalism, our human experience in the world is at stake. We pay the price one way or the other. I mean, that should really be clear. If we have invested billions of dollars to make ourselves more resi resilient to a pandemic, which let's face it, people have from George W. Bush to Bill Gates have been warning about for years. If we had invested those billions of dollars, we would have saved trillions of dollars. Either way, we pay the price. We can pay a little bit now or a lot later. I think we need to focus our efforts on paying a little bit now more consistently rather than so much later on. Absolutely. Very important point. So Greg Sattel, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. You bet. Greg has seen the power of successful, meaningful movements in his career. Whether it be corporate initiatives or the toppling of regimes, he has studied, explored, and shared what matters most when creating a movement that leads to better intended outcomes. He's also studied movements that did not achieve their goals, as well as those that were abandoned before real change could happen. The thing we can learn is this. Although success is never guaranteed, it becomes much more likely when you apply perseverance shared values, and common purpose when initiating a movement. This can compel people to join your movement by sheer intrinsic motivation while building momentum that will help hold detractors at bay. So, what is the future that you envision? And how might you apply your personal agency to find those with shared values and common purpose to join your movement towards change? Yes, you. And why not? You have the power to shape the future and bring others along with you to effect real change in the world. So, go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Greg Sattel, his Cascades workshop, and the great work that he does, visit his website at gregsattel.com. That's gregsattel.com. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Digital Tonto. That's at Digital Tonto. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.